before we begin, let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a great Savior. Thank you that you sent your Son to save us and to redeem us from our sins. Thank you that we have experienced your love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners, your Son died for us. And as we were just reminded, um, that love that you have for us, clearly demonstrated and displayed upon the cross, we ought to therefore love one another. So help us to see more of you, that our lives may be transformed and more conformed in the image of your Son, that we may reflect this love towards all those around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we'll be in chapters 11 through 13 in Exodus. Millions of Jewish people observe Passover each year, and they gather together with friends, family, acquaintances to participate in this holiday that God commanded them to celebrate 3,500 years ago. Our Passover week began last night for 2023. It's usually around the same time that Christians worldwide will observe or recognize Good Friday and the resurrection of Christ. So I want us to take a look at the text where this Passover holiday is prescribed, and it centers around the Exodus. In the Old Testament, the Exodus event is the Lord's masterpiece. It's his great work that puts on display for us to see and to learn who he is and his plan for us. And so we'll be looking at, again, Exodus chapters 11 through 13 to see the character of God. To get a little bit of the context, Exodus chapters 7 through 10 describes the plagues. Most of us have heard the story of, of the plagues with God and Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel and what happened. But Exodus chapter 7 through 10 describes the plagues, and these plagues are not just little things. They're devastating. They cause destruction. They're visible, supernatural evidences of God being at work. You have water turned into blood. That's not normal. You have frogs, you have gnats and flies, you have dead livestock, you have boils. can't even imagine that. Hail falling from the sky, locusts, and then darkness over the whole land. In those four chapters, God is making the land of Egypt an example to demonstrate that Pharaoh's kingly power and authority is no match to the matchless power and authority of God. And that he is king over everything, even over every aspect of nature. The plagues show that Pharaoh is greatly and clearly overmatched and overpowered. And yet in the Passover, Israel, when they celebrate it every year, they don't focus on any references to the plagues. They don't mention it, but they celebrate it with a lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And so Passover occurs in Exodus chapters 11 through 13. We'll be looking at that briefly with the time that we have. And I'll be reading portions of each chapter so that we get the big picture of what is going on. In these chapters, I want us to see that God in his very nature and essence is a savior. Saving is not just something that he does. It is who he is. And as we look forward to communion tonight and to Good Friday tomorrow and to resurrection on Sunday, let us be reminded of this character of God. Exodus chapter 11, if you're there, I'll read the first seven verses. It says, Now the Lord 
said to Moses, one more plague, and I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has never, such as has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now turn to Exodus chapter 12. I'll read verses 29 to 36. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the the clothes of their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now we'll jump down to Exodus 12, verses 40 to 42. It reads, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. Now jump to Exodus 13. We'll look at verses 17 to 22, the end of the chapter. It says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, The people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in a martial array, from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take Away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. (coughs) Strong faith comes from having a high view of God. 
The higher your understanding of God, the deeper your commitment to him will be. It's been said, quote, it would be a strange God that by knowing him more, you would love him less, close quote. We need to know God rightly if we are going to obey him rightly and if we are going to love him rightly. The whole Bible is a revelation of God to us. The whole Bible, in other words, is about knowing God, about knowing who he is. Genesis is about God of creation. Leviticus is about God's holiness. Jonah is about God's mercy. Every single book of the Bible is about God, knowing him more. And the book of Exodus is no different. The book of Exodus is also about knowing God. If you were to read through just the first 15 chapters of Exodus, you'll find over and over again this phrase. God says, I will do this so that you may know that I am God, that I am Yahweh. He wants you to know who he is and what he is like. And so the book of Exodus is not about what God did one time through this miraculous event, but it is a book about who God is at all times, for all generations. And these three chapters in particular highlight God as a Savior, that God by his very nature is a Savior. It doesn't just show us that God can save, it shows us that he is a Savior. And we'll take note of three details that highlight this attribute or character of God. We'll look at the first, the great escape, Secondly, the great Passover, and lastly, the greater Passover. So first, the great escape, and this is the great escape out of Egypt. The people of Israel who were in bondage for 400 plus years were finally freed from Pharaoh. Chapter 11 began with a warning to Pharaoh. God says, just as you killed Israel's firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn, and it will be devastating for you but peaceful amongst the people of Israel. As we read in chapter 11, verse 7, that not even a dog will be heard barking. Then in chapter 12, we get out, we get to the great escape. Again, verses 29 and 30 in chapter 12. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There's a great cry, and Pharaoh was finally humbled. Who, after plague after plague before that, said, I will not obey God. He now submits to God and tells Israel to get out of here. What, what do you notice about this escape? You notice that they leave very quickly. Verse 33, they were sent out of the land in haste, it says. Verse 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egyptians, so they leave in haste, but also with lots of stuff, with wealth. And we have to remember that these people for generations have known nothing but oppression and labor and slavery. That's been their life as a nation. People have been born into slavery. They died in slavery year after year after year after year. And then we read in verses 40 and 41. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, 
all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's amazing. They have known nothing but bondage, and now they are freed. The greatest power in the world, Pharaoh at that time, has been overthrown by the greater power, by God, the sovereign power over the universe. He has delivered his people, showing that he is the supreme king that rescues and blesses his people who otherwise could not save themselves. It's not just what he did, what he, <clears throat> what did he save them from, but what does God save them to that we see in this passage. He delivers them out of something to place them in a position for something. And that's important for us to consider. What does he do with them? Again, it's not just get out of trouble. It's not just here's the get out of jail free monopoly card. Look at chapter 12, verses 25 to 27. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. The word right there can be translated as service or also as slavery. And so the book of Exodus is about redemption. It's about freedom. It's about release from bondage. But it's not freedom for the sake of self-governance. It's not freedom for the sake of self-sufficiency. It's not freedom to do whatever you want to do. It's not freedom to express yourself however you want to. Exodus is about going from bondage to Pharaoh to becoming slaves, to becoming servants of God. And if that idea or that thought or that reality bothers you, then you don't truly know God. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. God is personally guiding the people that he has redeemed. He walks with his people. His presence is with them. Look at verses 21 and 22. Chapter 13, 21 and 22. The Lord was going before them. This is the Lord being with them. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so we see that he rescues his people. Why? That he might dwell with them. He is a savior who knows his people. He knows what is best for his people, not let him go the way the Philistines, as we saw in <clears throat> earlier. And he knows what they will and won't be able to handle as well. He protects them. He guides them. He's with them. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is a slave to something. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you are governed, you are ruled, you're reigned, you are owned by, held captive to, in dominion to, only inclined towards sin. You are in bondage 
to sin. But John 8.36 says, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. There is a way that you can be released from bondage to sin and be who you were meant to be in Christ. True freedom is the freedom to actually be a slave and servant of God. That's the freedom that's offered through the gospel, the freedom to be who God created you to be and to walk with God who created you. That is the good news, and we see it portrayed even here in the book of Exodus because God is a great Savior. It's who he is. So that's the great escape out of Egypt. Secondly, we'll look at the great Passover. And what is, what is this holiday that they celebrate? What is this annual event that God wanted them to observe? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take the one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Every household, it says, is to have its own lamb without blemish. The best lamb, in other words. And at twilight on Passover, you kill it. And it says, according to verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Then they're to eat the lamb, and they're supposed to, there's supposed to be this meal with instructions, specific instructions on how they were supposed to eat it, and this was supposed to be a quick meal. Notice verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that same night. It's also to be roasted with fire, which is the fastest way to cook it. Also with unleavened bread. Again, we're thinking a quick meal and bitter herbs. But why bitter herbs? Deuteronomy 16, the Passover bread is referred to as the bread of affliction. Bread of affliction. Bitter because it's supposed to be a reminder that Egypt, their time in Egypt, their bondage in Egypt was bitter. In verse 10, it says, Don't leave any of it over until morning. Burn with fire all the leftovers. Verse 11, eat with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why? Why eat it in haste? Because God is about to rescue them. In an act of faith in the promise of God, they trust that he will deliver them. Verses 12 and 13. It says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And they do this. They obey. In verses 21 and 23, Moses tells them, and they do exactly what God tells them to do. The result, God slaughters the firstborn of the Egyptians while the people of Israel are protected by the blood of the Lamb. We also notice that 
this holiday is tied to Israel's identity. Verse 2, it becomes a part of their calendar. And they are to remember this event, and that is to be, <clears throat> and why they are to celebrate it every single year. Verse 14 says, Now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And verse 24 in chapter 12 says, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And so year after year, they are to observe, celebrate Passover to remember that they are the people who were delivered so that they don't forget that. And this is also why the church is to observe the ordinance of communion regularly so that we don't forget the sacrifice of Christ and his coming return for us to remember who we are as the redeemed people. And in remembering that we are the redeemed, it should cause us to live like the redeemed in unity with one another, with peace at one another, loving one another, encouraging one another. And so another question to ask about this, this holiday, this Passover, is who took this Passover meal? You can look at it and, and read verses 43 to 49. But there it says, every Jew, every circumcised Jew was to take this meal. And if anybody wanted to join in on this meal, say a foreigner or a sojourner, they were allowed to, but they first had to be circumcised. Verse 38 mentions that a mixed multitude left with Israel. That's referring to non-Jews. The point is that they had to demonstrate that they were devoted to God. This wasn't just a one-time meal, but that they were committed to the Lord. And this is one of the reasons why, I think, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that it is wise to not only be a professing believer, but also a professing believer who has been baptized before partaking in communion. It's not law. It's not commandment. I think it's wise and a good principle. Take the one-time sign that associates you with the people of God before you participate in the regular event of remembering how God saved his people. Another question asked is, what was it that they were remembering? Verse 27. It says, you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. The reason that the Israelites needed to put the blood on the doorpost is because if they didn't, they would suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. This is the only plague where all people were at risk, Israelite and Egyptian. And so what you have here is the Passover lamb dying in the place of the firstborn. If the lamb doesn't die, the firstborn will die. But if the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost, life will be spared. So they're commanded to remember that. And that's the great Passover. This points us lastly to the greater Passover. The greater Passover. First Corinthians 5.7 calls Christ... He calls Christ our Passover. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, 
but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This points to Jesus as the Lamb of God who rescues us from the wrath of God. And why does John call him that? Because he is functioning in a way like the Passover Lamb of the Old Testament that the wrath of God would be removed from you by trusting in this lamb through his blood. Jesus and his death on the cross is allowing the wrath of God to fall upon himself so that it wouldn't fall on you. That by his blood, the wrath that should be yours for your sin is fully atoned for by Christ, the Lamb of God. God is doing in Christ what he did in Exodus hundreds and hundreds of years ago, only different and better and greater, not buying us out of bondage to a human king, but buying us out of bondage to our sin because he is by nature a savior, one who rescues people through the substitutionary death of a lamb. It is who he is. Matthew one twenty one says of the Virgin Mary, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is God saves. And because it is who he is, it is what he will do. He will save his people from their sins. We have to remember also that the Exodus event happened before the law even came in. And so we are reminded that redemption is tied solely and purely on God's love, on God's gracious choice and his faithfulness to keep his unilateral, unconditional covenant. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, it says, The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we read in Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 7, that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, because our God is a gracious and great Savior, that his name would be praised. And in Matthew 26, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as part of the new covenant, transforming the last Passover into this first observance of the Lord's Supper. And so as we prepare our hearts to worship God, as we partake of this meal as the body of Christ, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, that though we are sinners, Christ on the cross took our sins upon himself. And on that Good Friday, He was crucified, and he laid down his life for his own. 
in accordance with the predetermined plan and purpose of God. And on the third day, which we look forward to celebrating, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And as Romans 4.25 says, he was raised for our justification. He is our great Savior, and therefore we have a great hope. And that's what we'll be looking at Sunday afternoon when we gather together again, our great hope because of our great Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for demonstrating and displaying who you are according to your nature. Thank you that you're a God who saves his people from their sins. Thank you that in your love, you determined to display your love towards those who are undeserving, those who had no way to save or redeem themselves from what it was due to them. We see even with your faithfulness to your people, your chosen nation Israel, in redeeming them out of bondage to slavery in Egypt, not because of what they did, but solely because of who you are and what you did for them. And it reminds us of our own salvation in Christ through his blood, that it wasn't anything that we did either that merited or earned your favor, but is solely the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf that has purchased our salvation, who has redeemed us from the punishment that we rightly deserve, that we may be yours forever to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.